So let's look at the book of Ephesians. And we have to give ourselves a little bit of a context. We'll go back to our map that we've been using. Um, and here's what we'll know. Um, Ephesus, oh, I can't make it any bigger because the, the resolution is just too bad. All right. uh, Ephesus is on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's inland today, but at the time of Paul, it was not inland. It was on the coast. Don't worry about that. Um, it becomes the home of Christianity on Paul's third missionary journey, which you read the book of Acts, I think chapter 18, I think it is now. Um, it becomes the home of Christianity. Paul had all along wanted, wanted to kind of make Ephesus his base. As long as he was uh, ministering, and this is called the Aegean Sea right here, between uh, Greece and Turkey, uh, that's the Aegean Sea. As long as Paul's ministering in that area, Ephesus was the place he wanted to be the center of. It, it's the largest city in the area. Remember Antioch, uh, Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, three largest cities. But now this Ephesus is the largest city in this, in this area. Uh, it's a major city, about 250,000 people. So a, a, a great place to have kind of as his hub um, there. Now, uh, Paul's in prison when he writes Ephesians. Traditionally, uh, and I think your text should talk about this a little bit. Traditionally, Paul's in a Roman prison. Uh, I have recently been doing some work with a, with, a, with a good British scholar. We went over to Ephesus in Greece, and we, we, we did a tour of the land and stuff like that. We, we talked about his, his thesis as well. N.T. Wright, who's a, a major uh, New Testament scholar, suggests that Paul's actually in Ephesus in a prison in Ephesus okay. well, when he writes this letter. But whatever, whatever it is, he's in a prison there uh, um, in, uh, in Ephesus. Now, if he's in Ephesus, here's, here's the bottom line. Eph Ephesians doesn't seem to have any overriding issue that Paul's responding to. Okay, I think on the top of your, your handout, I refer to it um, somewhere, F.F. Uh, Bruce, the second paragraph. Uh, if you look at the second paragraph, I'll, I'll just read it if you don't have it. The letter to, F uh, to the Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written by Paul. It was John Calvin's favorite book. F.F. Bruce, who was a great 20th century New Testament scholar, regarded it as the quintessence of Paulinism. I don't know, it's, it's, it's the pinnacle of Paul's writings. Because in large measure, it sums up the leading themes of all the Pauline letters and sets forth the implications of Paul's ministry as, a, as the apostle to the Gentiles. Okay, so um, now with Ephesians, let's note the first thing, and that's this. Verses, chap chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14, 12 verses. It's actually one sentence in Greek. It's one really long sentence. But let's look at this one sentence, and I'll just read it out of my Bible instead of bringing it up on the screen. Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 6, he freely bestowed on us. Verse 8, he lavished on us. Middle of verse, uh, verse 9, he made known to us. Verse, uh, end of verse 10, beginning of verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of salvation, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's this tremendous letter that begins with the work of God, Trinitarian almost, right? Father, Son, and Spirit are all referred to in there. And what God has done for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 3. In the heavenly place, He chose us. He predestined us. He freely bestowed on us. Uh, in verse 7, we have redemption. Verse 8, He lavished on us. 
Verse 9, he made known to us. Verse 10 and 11, in him we have, the, uh, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him also you have believed, you were sealed in him. It's this letter that begins with this dynamic work of God. Now what's going to follow? What's going to follow is therefore what it means for us. Right? When you start with this, you know, you're going to have that great therefore, right? It, it, obviously it doesn't. Now, note then in chapter 2, you're going to have this, another contrast that's going to appear in the book of, uh, of Ephesians. And this, I think, is on the handout also. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead. Right? Verse 4 now. But God. Okay? You were this, but now God this. Okay? Look at verse 12. You were separate. Verse 13. But now... Okay, so the next thing that we'll notice in the book of, of Ephesians is this contrast between what you were and what you now are. So we have this great theological statement that begins Ephesians. And, 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 and note, by the way, if we were in a theology class, we'd probably be debating it for like three weeks. Mm-hmm. Because predestination, and the, right? Mm-hmm. All those things that the people... And, and let's let Oscar and, and, and uh, uh, Pastor... Uh, yeah. Jeff, thank you. Uh, Pastor, we'll let them debate what, what all that means. But the point of it is what God has done for us. Right? Whether it's apart from my free will or not, who cares, right? Amen. What God has done for us, and now here's what it means. You were this, and now this. You were this, and now this. Now, note what he says, and let, let's, let's see if we can figure out a little bit more detail about the readership. Okay, let's go back to chapter 2 for a second. All right, and we'll, 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 we'll go back to that same theme in just a second. But, uh, but look what he says. Uh, verse, verse 12. You were at that time separate from Christ... Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What do you know about the readers? Uh, and, uh, and what I mean by that is, what do you know about their race? They're Gentiles. Yeah. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, from the covenants. Right? But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, who, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who made both groups into one. See how that Jewish-Gentile problem is still there? And the answer is, God has a... It says, uh, verse 14, uh, he, is our, he, uh, he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's probably a reference, if you remember the picture I showed the last time, and you may not remember it. Um, there's that little tiny wall that ex- the Gentiles were not allowed to go past in the temple courts. And there's a sign on those at every one of the gates. Any Gentile who trespasses beyond this point has only himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's a, that's a rough translation of it. Okay, right? That's the barrier wall. <coughs> that wall that says Gentiles cannot go into the holy place or into the holy of holies. And the answer is Christ has broken it down. So what's going to follow next is temple language. Right? Remember? The whole essence of salvation is that God dwells in us and with us, and that makes us temples. And if Jesus has made the two groups into one by breaking down the wall, and that means Gentiles can go into the temple, and look what it says next. All right, I'll, I'll bring it up on the screen so we can all follow. Um, <coughs> Ephesians 2, uh, here we go, uh, verse uh, 18. Through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then... You are no longer strangers. So note the readership is primarily Gentile. 
You are no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There's your great temple statement. And note the temple language is both Jews and Gentiles are together comprising this one building. The foundation of the building is Jesus is the cornerstone, apostles and prophets is the foundation, and the rest of the building is being erected made of Jews and Gentiles, and therefore we're all temples. Okay? Uh, any questions about this? All right, got a couple more thoughts. It's, it's good that, that's, that Paul expresses that. Uh, you were saying something earlier. Uh, when, it, when that's not expressed, then marginalization happens mm-hmm. to God's people, and that's never good. Uh, second-class citizenship. And marginalization is, is unfortunately inherent in, in, among us, isn't it, right? Because you see the book of James. Right? If a wealthy man walks in, you say, sit over here. But if a poor man uh, comes in, you say, sit over here by my feet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So even in James, if the, and James might be the first book of the, of the New Testament, by the way. So Galatians was Paul's first letter, but James may predate Galatians. So you see, and if, in Acts 6, the, the, Greek, the Greek, Hellenistic Jews are saying, our widows aren't getting any, any, any food. Because the Hebraic Jews were saying, sorry, you guys are second class citizens. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but one of the things I think we learned from that, by the way, is, okay, good, my church isn't, isn't alone, yeah. right? My church is, not only is my church not alone, because your churches are all doing the same thing as well, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it was no different in Paul's day either. Now, that doesn't make it okay. We have to work beyond this <laughs> right. and work towards reconciliation and towards unity and unification. But at the same time, we know, okay, this is going to be a struggle. And let me, let me explain why I think the reason why, and that is this, because there's an enemy. Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. Remember, if we love, we're reflecting God's nature, because God is love. If we're unified, we're reflecting God's nature, because God is one. Unity and diversity is the nature of the church. It's the nature of God, unity and diversity. And Satan goes, man, if they're unified, they can be a whole lot more powerful and effective than if they're not. So so I think Satan wreaks havoc in us because of that. And therefore, watch out. Do you believe, uh, Pastor, do you believe that that happens even with... um the gifts of individuals, mm-hmm. as well as the purpose of each uh, local congregation. I'm not sure I understand exactly what you mean. I, I think I have an answer, but I want to make sure I know exactly what you're asking. I was speaking to one of my neighbors, and he, and he had one of his complaints was, uh, uh, "How come the church? If, if 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 you got so many churches in the neighborhood, how could you have so many problems in the neighborhood? How come they're not out mm. feeding? Well, that may not be their particular ministry." Yeah, but it may also be the church not doing its job. Mm-hmm. There's that. Right? And it may also be the fact that that's also in, uh, in, in endemic to society mm-hmm. and culture, right? So, so, so there's a give and take right there. Uh, and and it, there's no easy solution. So, so it's, it's one of those things. Um, I would believe in God, but I can't because 30,000 children are dying of starvation today. And a good holy God wouldn't allow that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. My response to that would be, all right, a, God's empowered the church to, to be the means to which that, that, that problem is rectified. Number one. Number two, the church is doing that job and has done a very good job of, of it. B, one of the reasons why 30,000 kids are starving to death is because bad people with guns are sitting on the food. It's not always the church's fault in, in all cases, right? Now, another problem, of course, is the fact that churches 
you know, boy, we can go along a, 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 a lot of different aspects on this on this question, can't we? Right? And, and there's, yeah. One thing, one of the problems that's happened because we have forty thousand denominations across. The, I, I, I think that number is pretty accurate. I know there's a thousand Baptist denominations. There's a thousand, you know, who knows? It, 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 it's crazy, and, and it's not always bad, right? I, I think there's there's some good things to some of the differences because there are cultural differences. And, and we can worship and serve within our cultural differences. Those cultural differences shouldn't divide us, uh, however. Right. But one of the things that happens then is the fact that I'm worried about really preaching the gospel fully because if I, if I do, they might just leave and go to another church. Mm. And I think we do see pastors and churches, and that's a word of exhortation to, to all of us, well, about compromising... the culture of the church instead of... The Say it again, Ralph? Get caught up in the culture of the church instead of the word. Yeah, yeah, but, but we get so comfortable in our culture that if yeah. you start speaking against yeah. it, mm -hmm. they're going to go, I want out because mm -hmm. I became so comfortable the way I was. Right. I, I don't want you changing anything like that, right? <laughs> so, right. I was, so now that there's, there's come, and, and there's just plenty of other churches for them to go to. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'd love to tell my people yeah. what I think, but I can't because they'll go somewhere else and they, and, they, oh. and, and, they, and they give too much. We have, we have all kinds of problems like that. The disunity <laughs> of the church, though, also, of course, renders us, renders us impotent. Right. Because if we were unified, we could resource ourselves together. Right. You know, and I think you do sometimes have uh, um, a little bit, maybe what you were saying there, Larry, and that is um, there are individuals like, like yourself, what we were talking about earlier, who, who have specific callings and gifts, and we need to empower those people. And some churches don't have that, the, the gifts within their congregation, and, they, and that's not their ministry. That's not their call. Not a bad thing. Not, not a bad thing. It just is. It, it just is. If we were unified then it, it would be easy. We would go, you know what? Hey, guess what? Dan's church over there, they do this really well. We're right. sending all, the, all our business right. on that front right. there. And then you send all your business to Kevin's church because they right. do this really well. Right. Right? You know, we, 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 we would resource together more effectively. As it is, we all try to do this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and some of us do it ineffectively. And, and, and we, we, we waste resources. Yeah. Yeah. We digress. Here we go. Now, next thing to note in the book of Ephesians here, and we're going to take our break because we're, run, we're running late. But in the book of Ephesians, is you have a household code. You'll see this in Ephesians. You'll see this in Colossians. You'll see this in Peter. A household code, and that is this. You'll see a little bit in, in, in Timothy uh, um, and Titus also, but not quite. Uh, Jesus said, my mother, my brother, and my sisters are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Redefining, I believe, redefining family around himself. Making the church a household. Now, in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was viewed as a household. The emperor was the head of the household. Now, in the Roman Empire, religion was determined by the head of the household. Mm -hmm. So the emperor was the responsible for the religion of the Roman Empire. Our job as children of the emperor was to be obedient to our father. The local household was a microcosm of the larger Roman household. The father's job in a local Roman household was to make sure that everyone obeyed the, 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 the larger household of the Roman Empire. The father, and this will be important for 1 Peter, the father then was responsible for the religion in, the, in that family. The wife did not have autonomy herself to choose any religion she wanted. She must follow her husband's religion. Just like the children must follow the emperor's religion. Okay. So we have this idea of household. It's common in the Roman world. 
It's also common in the church. And Paul looks at the church as an alternative household. In other words, remember Jesus said, I'm the king, and that's a threat to right? The gospel is Jesus is Lord, and that means Caesar is not. When Paul says, you're the household of God, that means Rome is not. It's this alternative. And so what Paul's, you'll see Peter say, hey, wife, you can practice any religion you want. And that's going to get you in a lot of trouble, and I hope you know that. So when you do so, maybe just don't worry about trying to convert your husband by, by words. Because you're already in a lot of trouble, and we may be putting you in harm's way. So you have this alternative household. So you'll see a household code. Husbands, wives, children, parents, and maybe even slaves and masters, because that's what a household was, right? Mm-hmm. It's a larger extended household. In the Roman world, the, the head of the house was responsible for everything in the household, including children uh, and slaves, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, the household code begins in chapter, well, it probably begins in chapter 5, verse 15. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. But what's very key is that you do not start it in chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Mm. Because you have to include chapter 5, verse 21. 5, verse 21 says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The Christian household is, is, is uh, framed on mutual submission. So we start with, okay, wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. But we miss something if we do it that way. Because, oh, the husband doesn't have to, have to be subject to the wife. The wife has to be subject to the husband. The husband just has to love his wife. Mm-hmm. you got two problems there. Number one, we're subject to one another. Mm-hmm. That means husbands to wives and wives to husbands. Mm-hmm. 521 is clear. Mm-hmm. Secondly, love means the other person is more important, right? That's the mm-hmm. nature of love. Mm-hmm. In fact, he says, love your wives as Christ mm-hmm. loved the church and laid down his life for it. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the husband doesn't have to submit to the wife is silly because submission the husband has an even greater responsibility of submission because he's told to die for her doesn't mean the wife doesn't have to die I, it's mutual submission exactly that and that's where you start and, and, and you can't isolate it isolate it any further all right we're going to leave of course that radical at that time this is absolutely radical yeah, this is, this is going to get you killed, radical. Not only is it radically countercultural, it's anti Roman. That, that's right. It's against the Roman religion, let alone being against the culture. That, that's right. Now, by the way, there were women that had prominent roles in, in culture. It just wasn't the norm. And, and, and women didn't have property rights and things like that uh, there. But there were prominent women. And so you see Priscilla, she's not, that's not radically uncommon. But it is the church that's radically countercultural in, in its fullness. So basically, a lot of them weren't prominent, the women, because of the Roman household. Yeah, because of the Roman household, because that's just the way, the way they did things. And that, that's what happened. And Not God. When we get right. to Colossians, we'll address this again, and we're going to look at, at Genesis 2 here. We're going to uh, run a little bit short on time, but we'll look at Genesis 2 as well. All right, uh, if I can make one more note, and that's this. The, the slaves, and I mentioned this, uh, I think I mentioned this before, uh, but let's look at this again now. Um, uh, uh, slaves and masters relationship now, and that's this. Um, ma- ver- chapter 6, verse 9. Masters do the same things to them. Okay, so note this. The reference to masters is to do the same thing that the slaves were commanded to do to the masters. It's this mutual submission again. So verse 5. Slaves be obedient to your masters. Verse 9. Masters do the same things. 
and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. I firmly believe that if you read Paul carefully and read the New Testament carefully, it undermines the, the principle of slavery to the extent that it will lead to its abolition. We're talking about American slavery now, which is different than, than slavery of, of the ancient Roman world. But if you read Paul carefully, it leads to its abolition because you cannot practice slavery and, what, and Paul's ethics because you keep your slaves in check by threatening them. And they, and they did in that day as well. Now, there's, there's a little bit of an economic slavery in Paul, actually a lot of economic slavery in Paul's day, uh, where what happens is, is I actually sell myself to you because you're going to give me a job and a place to stay. And I, and I want that. So it's, it's kind of like an employment contract. It's, it's slavery, but, but it's like an employment contract. And I, but I, I gain from it. And, and I value this. Okay. Now, if you threaten me, well, maybe what I'll do is eventually when I can pay it off, I'm going to get out of here. I can't get out of here now because I am in your debt. Yeah. But I can't save up and get out of it. Yeah. So it's not wise for you to threaten, especially if I'm a good manager. Remember the, the parable of the, of the steward. If I'm a good manager, you don't want to threaten me. Yeah. But if it is one of those because you're a captive of war type of situations or American slavery, right? Uh -huh. You can't practice the New Testament ethic and maintain slavery. Correct. Because if your slaveries begin obeying, you have to threaten them. Or, and, 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 and I, so I do think you see this undermining of this. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to, uh, we'll talk about women more um, and slavery more later on. All right, take a break. Yeah, just one thing on the yeah. women thing. I don't want us to just think Romans the way they were and everything else. You got to even think in this country. Women that's couldn't vote until 1920. That's, that's right. So it's not like it was way back then. Well, and it's not like women couldn't vote until 1920. They still don't have a lot of rights. That, that right? They still don't have equal pay. Right. They still don't have equal rights. They still don't have equal privileges. And, and I think the church is, is, a big, is a big factor of that. Big, how do we look at this in the church? I think we look at it from the lens of new creation. So uh, we can talk about that more also. And, but, and just to from a cultural sense, 